Hi, we're Midwich Cookers. You're listening to Punks in Pubs podcast. And hey, we've got a new album out called Death or Glory. You can listen to it online or check our vinyl out. You can get that from midwitchcuckoos.com. And guess what? We're on all the social media platforms. So come and check us out. Say hey. Welcome to the Punks in Pubs podcast. How's tricks? I hope you're doing well and all is good. In this month's episode, I'll be talking to a man who is parked up by the side of a road. Honestly, it's true. I speak to fashion photographer, pub owner, activist, but most importantly for this episode, the director of the new punk documentary titled Wake Up a Punk. His name is Nigel Askew. <laughs> As I said, Nigel had to park up by the side of the road to speak to me as he was on his way 
to see his son. So I do apologize in advance for the audio quality. His end, I have cleared it up, but it's not at the standard that I like to give you lovely lot. So uh, yeah, it is what it is. It's a free podcast. You can shut the fuck up. So what is Wake Up A Punk about? Well, it's a documentary that is uh, following Joe Corey, the son of punk royalty Vivian Westwood and the late Malcolm McLaren, as he burns an alleged £5 million worth of punk memorabilia in 2016 as a form of protest against the commodification of punk rock. I spoke to Nigel about how the documentary came to be, as well as some of the uh, the topic matters that come up within the film. Obviously, I don't want to give it away. I want you to go watch it. I also talked to Nigel about his work away from the documentary, such as directing the punk band The Fall, running in his local election against far-right politician Nigel Farage by teaming up randomly with Bez from The Happy Mondays. Yeah, we also talk about Brewdog and Punk IPA. I'll be back in a moment, but please enjoy this, my chat with Nigel Askew. somewhere <laughs> nigel is yeah, very kindly m42 i think i don't know or a42 to birmingham to see my son because he's at the university oh, well good man so thank you for spending a bit of time with me to talk about uh the documentary that you've made called wake up a punk that follows uh joe corran the son of punk royalty of course vivian westwood and michael mclaren as uh as he goes about to to burn allegedly five million pounds worth of punk memorabilia as a form of protest against the, uh, what's the right word? Gentrification of punk, would you say? Yeah, uh, I'm a commodification. So yeah, I watched the documentary on Monday. I enjoyed it. I really did. And I'm not saying that because we're, we're talking face to face, well, screen to screen right now. But I thought what would be good is for us to get an idea of yourself before we start talking about the film. When I've interviewed people in the past in the podcast, usually I do a lot of research and trying to find as much information about them. Whereas with you... You're a bit of an enigma in in some elements. Like there are stories about uh, your your kind of dipping your toe into politics as well as uh, being a bar owner. So what would be good is try and get to know like your bit of your background, really. So tell us a bit about yourself, Nigel. I mean, well, who, who I, are I, you? <laughs> yeah, I kind of started out doing photography oh, since I was about seventeen, and I did really well. I was one of the biggest library selling photographers in the Pacific Press region. I lived in Japan for a long time, been around the world. And then I ended up meeting a client there. And then I ended up, by the time I'd finished all that, I started making music videos. So I've made about 50, 60 music videos. And then uh, and then I ended up selling the largest fashion archive in the world. And with that, you know, that included where I met Vivian and everybody when I was filming backstage at all the shows. And I was, I've been making films for her for years. But I don't kind of do much publicity, so you'd never find about much out of me about on Google. So have you, you always know, had that kind of creative bone then? Is it always have you always been kind of like if you're gonna do like a stereotype 
academics and creative, you always kind of led to the creative side. Always terrible business. You know, yeah, I'm always just creative. I do things my own way. And I think that's probably why they like me. You know. So how did you get into like photography then? Was it was it someone in your family who had that kind of photography? Yeah, yeah some didn't really know what to do, and so somebody gave me a you know said, "Why don't you try working with this photographer?" So I worked with him for about a week, and thought, oh, "I really like this." And then I just kind of uh, taught myself from there. Really, I thought, "Yeah, oh, I'm quite enjoying this." So mm. I got myself a dark room and some cameras. Family helped me a little bit buy some cameras, so I just started taking pictures, and I really took a liking to it. And I was really good at it, so found something I was good at. I thought, yeah, I like this. So at what point then did you realise, oh, this camera can actually make me a living? I mean, like, what, like did you have like a, a shot that you took that really people really dug and then you, you're like, oh, I, I, this guy's or girl's willing to pay me some money for this? Yeah, I kind of think I got really lucky early on because I hit a technique that a lot of people copied me and a lot of people was asking how I did it. But it's a bit of a happy accident, really. I used to be, a, my dad was a keen roller skater and, he, you know, he has a roller skating kind of nightclub. And uh, it, so I used to have roller skates from the 70s, about 76, 77. And I was like, used to roller skate backwards with the camera with a flash on it. And uh, it used to shake and all the edges would be blurred. So I'd create a lot of movement and also I'd get a lot of laughter in it and a lot of uh, things out of it. So people really noticed them straight away. Thought, well, these are a bit different. How's he doing this? And so I just hit a lucky technique and then it just moved forward very quickly from there. So where could someone possibly go and look at your work? Do you, do you have like uh, expeditions going on? Is there, is there like any corner of the website where people can go and look at your work? No, nah, not really. No, nah, not really. <laughs> not really. I had to take it. No, I have a few friends that keep putting up websites and for me and pictures for me, but I think we just took them all down recently because something went wrong. Okay. So at this second, no. But normally nigelaskew.co.uk, there's a website up and it will show some videos. But, um, I mean, all the Alexander McQueen film, basically, was all my footage. Uh, the new documentary, the last documentary about him out. So probably one of the most used archives in fashion at one point that there was. But I sold it. It's not one of these people that jump out for credit and publicise themselves. and mm. Just do what I do. So, so let's kind of talk a bit of punk rock then. I mean, I, I don't know your background, so I don't know if, if punk is like a, the music of choice that, that you enjoy. But when, and I, I would never try and guess your age, but I mean, when did you first like realise there was this kind of community of people that were going under the banner or what would become punk? Oh, actually, it's a funny story, that one, because it was actually when I was at school and um, we were in South London, and people were saying, yeah, lad, we'll get safety pins around your neck. I think it was a guy called Stephen Grantham, I remember, right? But what was strange about that, when I added it up, when I look back on that, that was actually before 76. So I thought it must have been 76. And then I really thought about it, and I thought, well, that's not actually true. That was actually 74. He was talking about punk and safety pins and uh, padlocks around your neck and things like that. So... I actually, per, my, my personal view of it, it actually maybe started before that. You know, it really, Malcolm and the thinking about from the situationist, which is very much unknown. No one has mentioned that ever about what, where he got punk from, which was from France and the students and very much that, that kind of thing. Whether it, where it started on the King's Road, um, probably from the shop, but when, I think it's all a bit, it's a bit unclear, and I think it's probably a conglomerate of people. You know, I mean, in that film, it's really weird because most people's ideas of punk 
aren't really what it what it was. You know, they have the stereotype punk. So I tried to get rid of that idea, you know, uh, because it wasn't that in the beginning. Was the was the fashion or the music something that you took part in? Was it something that you enjoyed? I didn't think about it. I was a bit more of a, a Chelsea fan, really, uh, and sort of football. So I wasn't really punk. But actually, punks were like that as well, mm. right? So punk was everybody, every type of person, you know. But the music, yeah, I loved, always loved the music. But I, I wouldn't say I was a, an adamant punk rock fan or person. I've, I've just got, I just had a punk rock attitude. Yeah. That's the thing. I didn't realize it at the time. So, so do you remember then your friends that like you spoke about that, that that guy kind of put a safety bin uh, through his face? Like, do you remember your friends all of a sudden going like kind of changing their fashion persona because of like how big punk was was getting in the mainstream? It was on TV. It was something that was to be feared, I suppose. So, a lot of obviously young rebellious teens will want to do the thing that's scaring the shit out of their mum and dad. Like, do you remember your friends automatically just turning into into this kind of punk look? Not only one or two of them. Most of them were mods or something like that, or still coming out of a skinhead uh, vibe. Not the actual football type skinhead. It's more to do with ska music, but that sort of look. Uh, yeah, only a few, very few of them, I think. It was very, I mean, it's a very tiny scene. Well, I was really? going to say, do you think it's been blown out of proportion now? Like, we, we kind of look back on it in such tinted glasses that, like, if, if, you, if you kind of believe what you read, that every, young, every youth in, like, between 76 and 79 either had a mohawk, bondage trousers, or a safety pin through their nose. No, that's completely untrue. It's, it's just, that's, a, that's just a myth. It was a yeah. very small movement that had a lot of impact. Uh, because a lot of people wrote about it and a lot of people, well, you know, in the film, and once they sort of had the word punk, you know, they could sort of put you in a box. But it was just really a lot of people wearing a lot of different things on the uh, up and down the King's Road, you know, really. And it was a very small movement that had a lot of weight because of the authorities coming down on it so heavily and hating it. It gave them a, a platform. So, so for yourself then, were you into photography more than music or, or was it something that you were starting to kind of combine your passions with, with taking, photog- uh, taking photos at gigs? Was that something that you, you lent into or is it always kind of like fashion, photography, music was kind of like a B-side? Uh, well, I, it started out as fashion photography because that's what I kind of fell into when I was uh, young. Uh, and then, it, you know, I kind of moved into music videos. You know, because I ended up doing one for, I think it's Congo Natty now. It was called the Rebel MC at the time. They kind of went to number one or number two in the charts. And so then I had this sort of stream of work continuously for that. So, you know, I don't, I don't know whether I really was into, yeah. I, I mean, I did it for the full. It was probably the most biggest punk band I did. That was quite a good video. I like that one, White Lightning. Uh, and... But I used to do it for a variety, a lot of dance acts as well, you know. So what was it like working with the four then? Because obviously they're they're notorious, troublesome band to work with, if you, if you believe. Notoriously troublesome, yeah. It was exactly <laughs> the word. He wouldn't go on stage because I, I, it was Sunday and I hadn't bought him a bottle of whiskey. And <laughs> the thing is, is you can't, couldn't get booze on a Sunday in those days. That's why we didn't get 
him a bottle of whiskey. We said, well, where are you going to get, you know, a bottle of whiskey on a Sunday, right, at six o'clock? So he wouldn't go on stage. So I, I said to him, you're paying for the video. Why would you not go on stage on your own video that you're paying for, right? Oh, he was kicking off. He went on stage eventually. Uh, he wanted me to do the next video, but I wasn't over keen. <laughs> I never really got in with this Nazi thing. I know it was just a shot, but I didn't really get in with this. I couldn't really bring myself to go down that Nazi route, you know, especially not with the Joy Division and things like that. You know, it's just all too much for me at the time. I didn't probably didn't understand it. You know, that it was just to just to shock the establishment. Mm. You know, to be outrageous. But he wanted me to do something like that, and I just refused. I didn't work with him again. talking about Marky Smith that, that that's in case people are wondering who, who we were talking yeah. about there you kind of talk about it in the documentary the swastika which is obviously it was it was used in, in some of Vivian's fashion and and she spoke about it in the documentary and why she used it and, and I and I thought that was quite interesting looking at it like kind of now and how the Z of, of Russia is now being used as kind of like a shocking symbol I mean you can tell the story of, of why Vivian used the swastika. Yeah, I mean, it's really to sort of to, well, as she said, it's, it's because they're not going to accept their values. That was her personal way of using it. But I think generally it was to, it was the most outrageous thing you could put on you at the time to freak people out, to not have it. But uh, I didn't, I, I never really got that at the time. But you know, we did just to shock, just to annoy people, I guess. I think was why people did it. She did it for more thought reasons she actually was thinking it through where you know she just wasn't going to accept any of their values or anything so putting that swastika she looked slightly embarrassed to explain that story still the swastika because of course malcolm was half jewish as well so it was nothing to do with nazi or germany or anything like that but it of course it could be interpreted like that <laughs> it could be interpreted like that and I, but I didn't quite, it's like all the, when we were doing the fire, you know, I, we, we, we just, you know, I just went, let's burn that, that picture of Myra Hindley. We just like my dad got rid of it, right? Because we hate it. I mean, for us, for Joe as well, that's just, for me, he's going too far, I think, you know. But Malcolm was had different opinions. He'd go all the way, wouldn't he? I mean, we were touching Malcolm a little later in the film. But so for yourself then that was wasn't really didn't grow up so much in the punk universe but as a filmmaker you kind of researching and, and and kind of discovering the world of punk i mean what was the thing that you took away for yourself like what what was the thing that you learned and gone oh i never i never knew that or, or i never thought of it in that way well actually i think i learned a lot i mean when i first met joe yeah well i didn't meet i met him years and years back but first got put connected with him was way before this film and he used to say oh he's one of the last punk rockers left and i used to think what does he mean you know but after doing this uh, film i kind of realized what he meant it's an attitude of how you look at life and how you always stick up for people and how you uh 
you know, don't accept being told what to do. You know, you challenge people. You're always pressing people. You're always finding out. You're and you're never and you're always willing to stick up and fight for what you believe in. So you know, I didn't realize that. I, that you know, he used to tell me that I was I had a punk attitude. Not really take too much notice of it making of this film i realized that that is actually the important part of punk what's left punk, you know what what people can take forward from it that's what i really learned where the music and the fashion it was a perfect synergy together but one part of punk that's everybody's covered to death but the actual attitude and the political side of punk people haven't really covered in such a way the music tends to take over so that's what i concentrated on because that's what I really learned about it. I thought, you know, I came away with a different attitude on punk. Obviously, I didn't grow up in that era. And and people talk about, like, how punk became public enemy number one with with the headlines of, like, the filth and the fury and all that kind of stuff that's been, that everyone's kind of played out to death. But you, you, you showed a London councillor essentially advocating for punks to be buried in a ditch and to be killed. Was that something that kind of shocked you? Like, actually, how like the hate of the establishment of this kind of small uprising really was it it wasn't kind of like just a a plaything it like it, you literally had politicians calling for the death of punks that clip was actually in the field of the brewery so i had seen it before but i thought it was such a no it was in the rock and roll swindle the great mm. rock and roll swindle so i had to you know use that again because it was such to me quite a prominent moment and um, where joe saying now the hypocrisy of them celebrating it now like they had some part of it or like they you know it's part of the great british institution and stood against like beef eater now punk has become sort of normalized but that's what he really had. that's why he couldn't stand it but he understood that i didn't really understand that until after the film or when i was making it i understood why uh he was so angry in the beginning when they actually he actually chased Boris Johnson down the road. He's probably never told you. We were in a pub talking about it. He, Boris Johnson drove past on his bike and he actually chased Boris Johnson down the road. We stopped, looked at him, thought, why is this man chasing me down the road? Pedaled off at full speed. Well, I don't know if Joe would probably tell you that story, but I said, thank God you didn't catch him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is kind of like that, would you kill baby Hitler? Like he might have done us all a, a huge, a huge favour. Uh, right now. Yeah, yeah, he would have done us a favour if he'd have caught him. But he was absolutely angry because of that hypocrisy, exactly what you're talking about. Because, uh, you know, he'd lived through it or grew up with it, so it was still in him more. And then that's, you know, and then I started realising, right, okay, okay. <laughs> he hated it. He could see straight through it, see, where it took other people. I think after they see the film, they might start to see straight through it. But at the time, no, people were very against what he was doing he, they, they didn't see the hypocrisy in it want to kill him then and now go oh we're all for it <laughs> you know we all love it it's such a british institution so yeah before we start talking about the part that the <clears throat> film fully i mean I, I do want to quickly touch on like your your kind of i don't know if fling's the right word but in politics you 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 stood in the yeah it's 2015 election and and you stood in quite a high profile race because it had nigel farage running yeah at... well i didn't yeah you know i didn't go and chase nigel farage down he no. came down i have a pub in Thanet, you know and where he's and it was just becoming developed it was like really an era of deep deprivation and it was just starting to get regenerated with 
artist, an art-led regeneration. And then he came and stood there saying, I'm a man of the people with a pint in his hand. And, uh, and I thought, well, as I'm a publican, I can act, and, and people around that area, uh, they're not really into politics and things like that. And they didn't really understand. They just thought he was standing up for them. You know, we're the trodden few and, you know, using uh, all these, pulling this race card out, you know, immigration to sort of scare them. And I thought, well, you know what? They need to be told the alternative voice because, and uh, they're going to listen to a publican. And so I stood against him, <laughs> which was uh, a quite uh, an ordeal, to be honest, if I really uh, this, but because we don't do things by halves, you know, and the only people who are going to back you in a, some, doing something like that is, you know, the Westwards, really. They're the only people that are going to actually come down. Vivian came down, stood up for it, Joe was absolutely at the forefront of fighting him and this sort of you know and so we did it and that you know the truth is we defeat lost by 2,000 votes we definitely cost him 2,000 votes there's no doubt about that we put a lot of work a lot of effort into it because I realized that he was going to kill that area and all that development off in one go and also he was just horrible I mean it's just horrible isn't it I mean it's just no one has stood for that kind of election since Nazi Germany, you know, where you're dividing people to rule. And uh, on that premise, no one stood to say that blaming immigration was it was all their fault. It's just it was just a pack of lies, wasn't it? Financed by people that had money interests. So, so what lessons did you learn then from from going into 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 politics? I mean. We, we... I mean, I'm a quite hardened punk, but actually, you've got to take a lot of stick in politics, haven't you? You've got to take a lot of, lot of people attack you, like really under the belt. Yeah, really under the belt to get you. What did I learn from it, did you say? Yeah. You've got to stand up and fight if you can, you know, and I can. I was in a position to do it, so I did it, which is a bit of a punk attitude. I mean, I did it because I could do it. I didn't really want to do it. And I managed to persuade Bob and Roberta Smith, the artist, to stand up against Gove as well. That was quite a good uh, lesson. And then, you know, we teamed up with Bez from the Happy Mondays because he just won Celebrity Big Brother. So he used to come down and stand on the street corner with me. So he had a big influence on persuading people, especially right-wing people. He's very good at talking to people. They like a celebrity. You know, they were like, what's he doing here? You know, and he used to come down quite regularly to, to, to sort of come and stand with me, to back me. So did the Alabama Three. They were playing at a big concert there just before the election. And they kept coming out on stage when the whole of sort of Thanet was there saying, don't vote for him, vote for this guy. And I said to them, no, don't, don't vote for me. I'm not going to vote against him just to make him lose. But that was my message. Don't vote for me. Vote, don't, just don't vote for him. And then we put a lot of effort into it. I mean, a lot of finance, a lot of resources, a lot of effort. And it was tough. Before we move on, I have to ask though, what was it like standing on that stage when the results were read out? Because the national media had... Farage winning like everyone was like he's won he's going to be the first proper far-right political member of, of, of parliament in a in a very long time and then he he lost he lost quite spectacularly like you said like by 2,000 votes what was it like standing there because you were there to stop him from winning but everyone else thought he was gonna win like can you just explain what that was like yeah it was, you know, it, I, I was overjoyed it's like overjoyed you know like really joy. I, I was like just, you know, it was all worthwhile, all that effort, because it was a lot of effort. I mean, a major lot of effort. I mean, it's a la I lost a major lot of business because no one that voted UKIP came in the pub. No one that voted Tory came in the pub. Labour people said I was splitting the vote. And the only people I had left 
well, well, not with people that didn't care about politics or people that knew me that knew what. <laughs> all, but I, so, so, you know, it was quite a difficult time. So I was like, what have I done here? I'm, so I was really, really pleased when he didn't get in. Yeah, it's a good feeling. So, so last year we saw the release of like punk documentary Polystyrene and uh, I'm a Cliche and also musical comedy Lady Parts about a Muslim feminine punk band. And we have your documentary Wake Up a Punk and Danny Boyle's TV show Pistols coming out soon-ish. Uh, why, why do you think there is still a, a kind of mass public first for punk? And as you said, like it was just a small group of people at the time who made a bit of noise. Why do you think that the public fascination with this small subculture is still there? It's a good question. It just is. I mean, you know, I don't know why. I mean, because I think people are fascinated, even if they weren't punks, they like to feel that that was their rebellion. That was their teenage rebellion. Um, you know, that was what they had, you know, and they, the hippie, they, you know, of my, especially of my age group, you know, because we didn't, we sort of just missed the hippie movement. So, you know, what they had was the punk movement and it seems to resonate in their brain for forever and ever. And, it, and I think it affected a lot of people outside of being a punk. You know, they were sort of wanting to be part of something like that. It's a good question because it's hard to know the answer because it is amazing that it has resonated for all these years and is still going. And I think even Vivian is now sort of his realizing that it did have such an impact there is there is a part of your documentary whereabouts uh, joe just says vivian's just pissed off about talking about punk now and that did make me chuckle because obviously everyone wants to talk to her about punk and it must be so hard living your life when you've created this fashion empire but everyone still is going oh vivian tell me about the sex pistols or tell me about sex like what was punk like it, it did make me chuckle well she wouldn't do it you know, there's not actually many, very, very few. Well, I don't think there's any in depth like this one uh, talking about punk. I don't think there's any because it moved on from punk. I think she explains it in the film. I think there were some of the interviews, you know, she got out of punk because she thought it was a marketing opportunity for the establishment. You know, from what I got from the film, she saw it as a failure, but, you know, didn't realize it was going to still be resonating now because they had the political views of punk instead in it, not the music and all that kind of thing. Like she was very much the political person, changing the world. That's why she got into it. She didn't manage it. You know, she felt it didn't change the world. and She wanted it to. You know? So it's a good question. And, and I think only, uh, it, I mean, even academics study it, don't they? That is very, you know, that's what I find quite interesting. And people just want to know why an interesting subject. Well, I, I did my master's on punk. Uh, I did oh, so, right, so yeah. like, like, yeah. and and he got me a degree. I mean, that degree got me nothing, but I still got a degree. As I said at the start of the documentary, the film follows Joe as he burns an estimated five million worth pounds, five million pounds worth of punk memorabilia. It it was in 2016 that this happened. It was the 50th anniversary of the Sex Pistols and a kid in the UK. Obviously, him burning 
the the memorabilia split a lot of the punk community regarding should he shouldn't he and the media around it was global about the idea of this guy how dare he burn something that's so sacred to a lot of people because you you speak about it in 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 the documentary like the media kind of twisted it a little bit and tried to make joe a bit of a villain was this the reasoning why you started filming was kind of like you knew what was going to happen so therefore you and joe wanted to make a film that would eventually show his side of the story and why he's doing it kind of it kind of happened we wasn't really sure he was he didn't know that that when he said it that the media was gonna pick up on it and it was going to go to 1.9 billion people read the story you know but once that happened you kind of had to capitalize on it didn't you really otherwise i mean it was a very punk thing to do he was basically don't you think he was just i couldn't believe they couldn't see he was just following his father's thing in the true spirit of punk and they couldn't see that and they the media fell for it just like they did in 76 they didn't couldn't see through it or the other punks couldn't see through it but Nobody would talk to me when I tried to do interviews. They were too worried about their own image or their own feeling or what people would think of them. They didn't want to be hated. Whatever reason, I was very hard to get an interview with anybody at all. They all were just disassociated. I've never seen, it's like a massive hatred campaign, but back in like the, the, you know, the politician that said bury the pumps. People were really freaked out about the money. Fake news didn't exist at that point. No one checked anything. He could just say anything, basically. And it can go to 1.9 billion people and they all, whatever, if it was true or not, they'd still read it and believed it. I mean, you know, I think it's a bit in the thing. Vivian sort of said, how can that old stuff be worth 5 million? But it actually is actually worth 5 million. But Genie's thought, it's like old clothes. What do you mean? And, they, you know, it's not the only clothes. I mean, people couldn't see it, could they? It's not the only collection of punk clothes that's been the V&A. You've got a big, massive collection. All people around the world, different collectors have got different bits. It's not the only clothes. So. You touched on Jordan because she was the only one like of, of the names of that era who, who was willing to talk to you and, and kind of was part of a Q&A as well. Uh, and, and I think she had the right attitude that it's his. He can do what the fuck he wants to do with it. Like, yeah. She understood Joe straight away because she understood the whole concept of it. And so did Eddie Temple, Judah. He understood it straight away. He didn't need to. I didn't need to explain it to them. They did. They got it straight away. They thought, well, that's it. Punk. If he wants to do it, do it. So did you approach any of the pistols and like obviously the ones that are alive? Like to because obviously it was on their anniversary. It's an absolute no-go area. I mean, Johnny Rotten made that quite clear in his concert. Why doesn't he bone it burn his own bra? Which I thought was quite a few comment, <laughs> but he was. He was doing it in his dad's name, so he was burning his own bra. The anniversary of Anarchy in the UK. But you know, he just happened to have the acetate from his dad. So, well, what's it gonna do? Sit here or do I burn it to annoy people? which is what Vivian said, which is punk thing to do. I mean, I think he did the right thing, stand up, because most people aren't, were not in a position to stand up and say anything. I mean, the Sex Pistols were, but they didn't. Stand up for butter now, that's, that's about it. Yeah, well, the whole thing about that, right. I mean, because we obviously wanted the soundtrack of Anarchy in the UK. I started it out, I thought that was quite important for the film because it's a celebration of anarchy in the UK. I thought, oh, I don't care about the soundtrack. But then in the end, you know, they had to have a majority decision. Everyone would just blame Johnny Rotten for saying no. 
you know, oh no, can't Johnny won't have anything to do with it. And then when Danny Boyle won that court case, dynamics changed. Had to be a majority decision. So, well, they all said no. They wouldn't let us use what was what I was in a, any of the music, anything. The forty-year or five-year-old film Joe's dad wrote, you know, forty-five years ago, they wouldn't let us use anything from the rock and roll swindle. I mean, that's ridiculous. 45 years ago. So obviously they've still got to be in their bonnet and they're still kind of trying to control their whatever they want to control, uh, which I was very surprised at, really, because it wasn't very punk. Obviously, you're telling the story of, of Joe burning the memorabilia, but what I resonated with was was how Malcolm McLaren kind of came through in, in the documentary as well. A sense of Joe and Malcolm having sometimes a, a, a problematic relationship that had a vindictive side from Malcolm in the will that you, like you kind of reveal that in, in the will from Malcolm, he basically says, Joe gets nothing. Was the idea of talking about Malcolm always going to be part of the documentary? We're actually kind of glimpsing into the relationship between Joe and his dad. Was that always part of it, or was that just something you found in the edit? No, I don't know what really started it. It's because the press started going for Joe, saying he's burning it because of his he hates his dad and the will, and say they sort of brought the subject up. So I said, let's just put this to rest once and for all. Right, exactly what went on and exactly who said what. But, you know, the true thing of it is you can't say, you know, I'm not, I've made thousands of documentaries and it's done in a very punk way, but you can't say anything without, you know, it's got to go past the law. I mean, really, there's another story which I can't probably say. We just wanted to put this whole situation, I wanted to, to rest so people knew what, what went on and why. But no, that we didn't actually set out to put Malcolm, make Malcolm like that at all. Because, you know, but he did actually, we ended up putting Malcolm in the coffin, you know, and uh, bringing him into it because he needed a voice in it. Yeah, I, I saw it as possible therapy for Joe, like burning it. Like it, not so much hatred, but it was like, it, this, this was something that was part of my dad's legacy. And, and my dad would have found the, the enjoyment of it because it is quite punk to burn all this money, or well, fake, well, inv- like invisible money that is this memorabilia. But also, it's kind of like going, this is now my legacy that's been stepped down from my dad. So my dad was punk. Me doing this is punk. So I'm kind of, kind of like a generational thing. That that's what I took from it. Not I'm doing well, this because I hate my dad. But I think it was a tribute to him doing it. That's the that's what I feel. And you know, and I was right there listening to him. Obviously, there was a little bit of upset over the wheel. There was, he was very hurtful. But, but that was what he did was a tribute to his you know, because he really, really did love his dad and loved everything, was his biggest fan and did every, you know, and thought what he did was great. So, yeah, no, in a way, the whole burning was a tribute to that. 
So in the film, you 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 also kind of look towards climate crisis and and you hint at like climate activism being like the new punk. What was that kind of part of your aim as well when when making the documentary was to kind of link like the 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 activist in in the environment world to 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 what the old school punks were doing? Was that also part of the film? Totally, totally. I mean, you know, Addy said you hijacked punk. Activism. And I said, yeah, well, the government hijacked it. We've hijacked it back. Um, so, yeah, totally. With it. It's very hard to sort of mix the two together because one minute it was a story about punk and the next thing, we're moving it on to activism. But, you know, you've got to remember they were, I used to go to meetings with Joe, Vivian, and trying to round up all the activists together uh, so they could all work together. And that was way before this. This was like ages ago when the they first were talking about fracking and so that kind of so yeah definitely i mean that that was the idea we wanted to really make a film about activism so we made a film about how punk you know activism is the new punk is there a fear though that like the link like we could we spoke about hippies and and the anger at hippies of 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 there's, there's a story that you tell and i don't want to give too much of a documentary away about malcolm being so angry at the hippie movement because he didn't feel like they were doing anything. Like there wasn't the, the anarchist uprising. Is there a fear of like the, the environmental protest now with kind of super gluing yourself to the, to the ground? Is that not what M- Malcolm was really angry about? Like where is the doing? Where is the driving? Where, where is the, like, the anarchy of it all? Mm. Well, it's kind of, yeah, you are. I mean, super gluing yourself to the ground is a sort of suffragette type thing. Hmm. You know, you're not, you can't go around at the moment, you know, you can't go around blowing people up. So, you know, and taking over parliament, unfortunately. So you, the best thing you can do is, is a silent protest, more like a Gandhi, I guess. He was successful to sit down in front of parliament and, you know, numbers are really how you're going to win. Um, and getting people's sympathy, you know, maybe stopping the traffic doesn't really get their sympathy. I just think it's taking a different form of protest. You know, and you've got to, if you can't protest, you know, you've just got to do what you can and move the protest on. You can protest by mentioning it every day to someone. You know, that's a form of protest. That's a form of punk protest, just by talking about it to someone, because it will just, to resonate it out within yourself. Got to find things that you can do on an everyday level, which can be, over a long period of time, can be just as effective as jumping in a silo, a gas silo, and stopping the, stopping the traffic. By just doing it every day, doing something little towards it, you know, and collectively, that can be massive. That's what I wanted people to take from the film, to actually stand up and do something, whatever it could be, whatever they can do, make the world a better place. And that's what the punk, first punk attitude was all about. That's why we want to finally get people to rekindle. You know, and those activist people are kind of heroes, really, aren't they? You know, they're, they're really standing up for the future generations. You know, they should be appreciated. Just like when they they were with punk, well, that's what Vivian was doing. Was there ever a, a, a worry when making the documentary that it might be perceived as older generations telling younger generations what punk is? Definitely, that was the point. That was why, you know, we did really did want to make a film about a load of old of uh, something that happened forty years ago and make it nostalgic. It was, as we said, it was not really meant to be nostalgic, and that's why I introduced all the kids climate action you know that's why i kind of linked it to the dickens workhouse you know to try and bring 
into a younger generation's audience. I'm very aware we're coming up to the hour, so I'm going to start wrapping up soon enough. But in the film, I'm, I'm very interested in this bit. In the film, you had Vivian, Joe, and uh, Ben, who is Joe's uh, brother, Vivian's other son, talking about what punk has become in a commercial terms. And, and you show Vivian looking at uh, a BrewDog punk IPA image. And I'm interested to know if anyone from BrewDog got in contact with you because they're, they're known for being uh, a bit trigger-happy with legal action, having uh, tried to sue a bar that had the term punk in a name. I'm, I, I'm, I'm really interested if anyone from BrewDog got in contact with you. No, we were really hoping they would. You know, we were like, <laughs> actually, I make it worse. Make them off more. But in the editing, it didn't work in the edit. We were going to make, make it worse. Someone said to me, oh, you're advertising them. And we were a bit, but no, we were hoping they were going to, but I don't think they've got the nerve to go for a punk for Vivian. And if they did, well, that would have been funny. Being a publican, I know the stories about them and they're not very, well, you know, a lot of people don't like them, put it that way. Um, but, you know, it's really funny because we're always, we tried to, the police, we were hoping the police were going to shut the barge down, but they didn't, right? <laughs> so we thought we could repeat it again and we could all get arrested. Um, you know, when we did the Farage campaign, we got the Tory logo and stuck it on the reality party. You know, welcome to the Tories' frat future with all death. You know, they actually used their logo, but they didn't do us either. And neither did, uh, you know, Brewdog now. They didn't get into touch. So, so what's the plan with the film then? I understand you have a, like a London premiere coming up soon in selected cinemas on, on May 5th in the UK and then on demand May 9th. I mean, where can people find the, 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 the documentary uh, globally, is have you got like uh, deals set in place with like the big streamers? I mean, what what's the process? What what how what's moving forward? How does it move forward? Well, we've got a really good distributor, Republic Films. They're a good independent uh, distributor. We didn't go with mainstream because we're just not mainstream people. And he seems to be a fantastic job. So he's going to. It's got a, quite a few cinema releases around the country, which we didn't quite difficult to do. So I was really pleased about that. So it's getting extra time in the local art cinemas around the country. And then it will go on general release. I think it was June now. It was May, but I think it might be June. And we're waiting to see who picks it up, really. And then it will go on international release. Uh, and from then, and hopefully we'll just get numbers to watch it, because that's generally the idea. But I'm hoping the film has longevity because of the historical value of it. So that's what I'm hoping. Um, and we were thinking about giving it away, but I think that maybe undervalues it and maybe doesn't get people to watch it. So, you know, it may be better the other way around. They can't get a copy, so they want to see it. I'm not sure which one is makes it the most effective. And pitching to you now, you could go down the band camp route and, and do like pay what you want. Like that, that that's the way like people value and they 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 pay what they what whatever they want to pay. It could be a good idea. I don't know what the distributors will think about that one, but <laughs> it wasn't ever a money-spinning option for the whole thing. Like I said, I, I enjoyed the documentary, and, and I would, I don't know, I'd definitely uh, recommend it to people listening to go and seek it out uh, once, it's, once it's released. And, uh, and, and if anything, support independent filmmakers. Like that, what, what, that's, that's punk. So, so, so go do that. Uh, but yeah, Nigel, thank you so much for pulling over and spending a bit of time with me. And, uh, and yeah, yeah, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
thank you to Nigel for pulling over and uh, talking to me. He did the right thing. He didn't use his phone while driving. Don't drive with your phone in your hand, guys. You'll end up just dead. And that was a, a public message announcement <laughs> by me. There you go. Also, massive thank you to Midwich Cuckoos, who are hot off playing their set at the Manchester Punk Festival for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. You heard their track, Crosses, at the start of the episode. You can watch that video on our social media. I'll be putting it up soon enough. And you can also go and download their new album, Violin Link, in the episode description of this podcast. Not done this bit in a while? Go give the podcast a rate and review. It helps other people find the podcast. I'll be back soon enough, but in the meantime, if you're going to a punk show and you see someone fall down, you pick them right back up again. Laters. And the world-